0: Today's episode of the Serial Dynasty is sponsored in part by Audible. Audible is offering Serial Dynasty listeners to download one free audiobook. To download your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. The majority of the expenses to operate this podcast come from listeners like you through your generous donations. If you'd like to help out in funding this program, simply go to our website, SerialDynasty.com, and click the donate button. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Serial Dynasty. In today's episode, we have the wonderful opportunity to sit down with an amazing guest. I was privileged enough to be able to interview one of Adnan's best friends from high school, Krista. You'll remember Krista because of her interviews on Serial. She's also appeared on the Undisclosed podcast a couple of times, And for those of you that have spent a lot of time digging through documents and cell phone records and things of that nature, uh, she's one of the names that you see multiple times appear on Adnan's phone records. They spoke a lot. They spoke on the day of Hay's disappearance uh, and multiple occasions after that. In a nutshell, Adnan and Krista were very, very close friends. Krista was also very close with Hay. They were all part of the same Magnum program at Woodlawn High School. And as you'll hear in the interview, Krista spent a lot of time with Adnan in the days, weeks, and months following the disappearance of Heyman Lee on January 13th, 1999. I had a fairly lengthy conversation with Krista, so we'll go ahead and get right into the interview. We're here today with Krista. Krista was, as you'll remember from the Serial podcast, um, one of Anand's close friends um, and was featured on Serial as well as Undisclosed, and Krista was gracious enough to let me give her a call today for an interview, so uh want to say hello to Krista. Hey, Krista, how you doing?
1: I'm good. How about yourself?
0: Oh, I'm doing well. I had a busy week, and I'm glad you took the time to sit down and chat with me today. Um, if you don't mind, we can sit down and just talk a little bit about how, uh, you know, things went in high school, your relationship with Adnan and Hay and some of the other players in the, uh, in this whole case. And, uh, and just kind of walk through kind of what, what went on back in 1999 and since then. And, uh, before, before we get into that, um, I think you'd mentioned, uh, through a couple of emails we had back and forth. Did you say that, uh, you come from a firefighting family?
1: Uh, I do uh actually, my dad is a retired firefighter paramedic from Baltimore County. My mom is a firefighter emT in Baltimore county, and my sister is a thedo emT with Baltimore county uh, fire department.
0: Oh, wow, so you have a uh, you have a lot of experience dealing with uh probably the week that I just had this week.
1: It, yes, and I actually am the president of our local volunteer fire company that I've been a member at since um two thousand so I'm pretty heavy in in the fire department activity.
0: Oh, great. Um, so, getting back to, all the way back to 1999, Krista. So, can you talk to me just a little bit about, um, your relationship with Adnan? Um, I guess Adnan first and then maybe, cause you were, you were friends with Hay as well, correct?
1: Yes, I was friends with both, um, Hay and Adnan, and I would say pretty much equally. Uh, we were a very close-knit group of people, um, all in the magnet program together. So, we kind of had all of our classes together. We did our outside activities together. We all hung out after school, at, you know, over the weekend. Um, so we we spent a lot of time together just as a core group of people. So we all got friendly with one another.
0: Okay. You know, you just mentioned something about uh, you guys all hanging out after school and things. You know, that's one of the the questions that I get a lot and I see thrown around a lot, you know, asking about, um, a non getting a ride from Hay to track practice. Do you recall during that time if that was something that was kind of th- that happened on a regular basis that he would, that he would catch a ride either from Hay or anyone else down to the track?
1: Um, you know, to the track specifically, I don't know. Um, but my senior year of high school, I actually left school early. So I decided or chose to only go to school for two periods a day. So I was, I was school by 1045 and then I worked in the afternoons until 5 o'clock, usually every day. So I wasn't there to necessarily see whether or not he got a ride to track, but it was not unusual for him to get a ride from her even after they were not dating anymore.
0: Okay, so that was kind of a common thing. Uh Yeah,
1: I mean, even after they broke up, she still referred to him as one of her best friends. Um, They still talked all the time, so it was just that the friendship was still there, the relationship just was not.
0: Okay, so even, was that the case even, like, after she started dating Don? Yes,
1: yeah. yeah. I know, you know, it was hard, I think, for him a little bit just to know that she had moved on right away. But, like I said, they were still very close. Um, so if one needed something um, non-relationship-wise, like, you know, when Hayes' car broke down and, and she needed help, she would call not even though they weren't together, because they still looked out for each other. They still cared about each other a lot.
0: So I, I guess kind of, you know, right to the point before you move on to some of the other things, just to be clear, do you believe that Adnan murdered Hay?
1: Um, I have no. <laughs> I've never in a million years would be comfortable saying that, that I could wholeheartedly believe that. Um, I had a hard time grasping how some people that we went to school with or some people that we were friends with, you know, 100% were convinced that he was guilty uh we did not know anything about the case. Uh, we didn't know anything about the case against Adnan, uh, obviously, actually, until serial came out this year. So it was kind of eye-opening for me because for the last 15 years, I've sort of been sitting here like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, this is crazy. I felt like I was the only one that was doubting everything. But now I feel like there's you know, 5 million people out there that are listening to the same thing with the same thoughts that I had then that solidifies, all right, something's definitely not right here.
0: Did the, um, feeling that a lot of the, there, that you were getting from a lot of the friends that did believe he was guilty, um, did, did some of that start right away after she went missing or after her body was found or did, did that kind of come in after Anand was arrested?
1: Uh, I would say that that definitely did not come in until after Adnan was arrested. I mean, we still all hung out together. Um, the night before Anon was arrested, he left my house at probably 12, one in the morning. Um, so it's not like we were, he was isolated from the rest of us. He was very much a part of our close-knit group. And never in a million years did any of us imagine that when he left the next day or, you know, that morning, um, would be the last time that we saw him outside of prison walls.
0: And then after, after he was arrested, I'm sure people assume, I've kind of always assumed that, you know, the police typically get the right guy. And if they arrested him, they had a reason to. And, I mean, do you think that that played into why people then just assumed, because because were there a lot of his friends that, it, you know, after he was arrested that just really believed that he absolutely did this?
1: Well, like I said, nobody really knew anything. So we, we were naive. We were all 17, you know, just turned 18 years old. A lot of people just assumed that if the cops arrested him and he was behind bars that they had to have had the right guy, they had to have had something on him. But nobody really knew what that something was. Uh, even... When it went to trial, um, all witnesses were not allowed back in the courtroom.
0: Moving on from, you know, we mentioned some of the other friends that all, um, you know, once Anand was arrested, just kind of assumed the police got the right guy. Um, are, are you still in contact with any of those old friends from high school?
1: Um, I still talk to a couple of that. You know, there, there's people that I, Keep up with every now and again on Facebook. Um, but there are, there are quite a few. I'd say probably four or five people from high school that I'm still very close with that we talk on usually like a weekly basis.
0: Are any of them, uh, that you're still in contact with any of kind of the, uh, I guess I'd call them the, the major players in serial undisclosed, like, like Aisha, um, Becky, Debbie, any of those people anymore?
1: No, I mean, like I said, not really. I kept up with Aisha. I guess, into college. But, you know, everybody sort of went um, to college or schools in different cities when we graduated. So once everybody sort of moved away, we didn't really see each other as much as we used to. Um, the only person I think that Sarah interviewed that I'm still in regular contact with is Laura. And her and I talk on a frequent basis.
0: Okay. Um, was she one of the ones that kind of was convinced that of Adnan's guilt back in, you know, 99, 2000?
1: Uh, she was and it's not I guess her famous moment, but she was the one I guess everybody knows for her uh talking about how there wasn't uh payphone at Best Buy because she knows uh she was the layout and when she used to exactly.
0: <laughs> so uh is and from what I remember from uh listening to her on serial, she doesn't seem very convinced at this point that that he's guilty.
1: No, no, and she's never you know, she's one of the people that I could always sort of talk to about it because she was never not made sense to either one of us, really.
0: Okay. And am I remembering correctly that uh, Aisha was somebody that you were pretty close with that you spoke with after some of the interviews?
1: Uh, Yes. I mean, well, not my interviews with Sarah, but Aisha and I were very close um, just, I guess, all through high school. So Hay was uh, Aisha's other best friend, I guess, at the time. So we all kind of hung out. It was usually like Aisha, Hay. Uh, Becky me our friend morna some of the times our friend Sean so it was like the same five or six people and then a few extras that that work here every now and again so that that all really hung out and were close together
0: okay and um I think it was mentioned undisclosed that um, you had spoke with aisha after she had interviewed with uh the police um and, and what are you the
1: day that ha- Sorry, yeah. The day that Hay went, uh, the day that Hay first went missing, you know, I used to, know, I used to talk on the phone every night. So it wasn't, it wasn't unusual for her to call me or vice versa. And I believe one of us called each other that night. And, um, she made mention of the fact that she had heard from Hay's family and that they couldn't locate Hay, um, from that evening. And that's when I said, okay, well, I, you know, I don't know I'm not supposed to get a ride from her or whatever. Has so anybody checked in with him? Um, but she's the one that I guess I got most of the information from, you know, when she went missing, when her body was found. Um, I had talked to her that night as well. So she and I had been in close contact on a regular basis back then.
0: Have you had any contact with her since Serial um, and Undisclosed have kind of brought all this back to life?
1: Um, not necessarily. I did get in touch with her. I know uh, Susan was trying to track her down. At one point, so I had kind of just sent her a message saying, hey, uh, you know, would you be interested in talking to anybody regarding Adnan's Key? Okay. That was, that was pretty much, pretty much it. And I don't know if they have connected at this point yet or not, but I at least put that out there that if she's willing to talk about it, that people were willing to talk to her.
0: Okay. And when you were interviewed, you were only interviewed one time by the police department, is that right?
1: Uh, the police, yes. I was interviewed the day after, uh, the day after I got arrested. So I guess it was on Monday. He got arrested on early on a Sunday morning and Monday we went into school. Um, and I can remember there was like three of us. I think it was myself, Laura, and I think Becky went down to the principal's office. Like first thing that we needed to talk to the police because. You know, they had the wrong guy. There was no way that Adnan was guilty. And unbeknownst to me, at that point, the police were already looking to talk to me because of the amount of times that my home phone number showed up on Adnan's cell phone records over that just period.
0: Okay, they hadn't made any contact with you prior to that when she was missing or the body well, found anything?
1: No, and actually I believe they finally tracked me down by calling my work uh when i got in there and they actually came to my place employment and interviewed me for about an hour and a half but uh it was when billy Garrett came in uh to my office
0: okay now in that interview um you know there's been a lot of talk about you know on on my podcast and undisclosed um about the methods that the police were using to interview do you remember kind of the process in the interview as far as you know, were they asking you anything about what Hay did or was it all related to Ad- anon And were they, were, were the, were all the questions leading you, um, in the direction of what Adnan was doing? Um, and kind of leading you to believe of, of Adnan's guilt already at that point or how did that process go?
1: Um, I don't know if they were necessarily leaning towards getting me to try and, and believe he was guilty, but definitely the line of questioning was all related to him. Um, I can remember specifically, like, up to that point, I didn't have any knowledge that he and I had even talked the night that he disappeared. I mean, we talked all the time, we talked on a daily basis, but it didn't dawn on me that that would be why that they were looking for me. Um, and they were specifically honed in on that, you know, 538 call that lasted two seconds to find out what was said, and uh, you know, I'm like, I, you know, I wasn't even, I didn't answer the phone. <laughs> right. And in fact, I can remember um saying, I, I remember dialing Star-69 because I used to get in trouble for having high phone bills <laughs> when I was 18 because I would dial Star-69 to see who my, the last caller was. And I actually, like, had a record of my cell phone for that time period that shows on that day at this time that I used that. And then call that non so I didn't actually talk to him when he called at about 5:30, calling me just to hang up on my machine.
0: And I'm sure, with his, as often as the two of you talked, you probably don't remember that specific conversation.
1: I do remember some some of the conversations from that evening, which, I, like I said to you before, I don't I don't want to get into too much detail about you know what I testified about with that only because. With everything going on, I don't know what's going to end up happening. If he is granted a new trial, obviously there's a possibility that I'm going to have to retestify.
0: Just in general, during that that time frame, do you remember, as far as his tone? Do you do you ever remember getting the feeling from him that something was weird, something was going on, something was up?
1: Not during this. Not during the time frame when she was missing. I mean, the only turn um, that that I got after when we found out that she was no longer living was more of like. Sadness, Like, I need her to be here in order to get over her. I don't know how I'm going to get past this. Um, And he was really taking a while to process the fact that she wasn't there. Um, I'm actually the one that called him to tell him that they found her body and that she was no longer alive. And that was just a really raw conversation that I feel like it probably took until he saw the news the next night. And we were sitting there and he literally saw her picture. On the five o'clock news age, that her body was found, that that's when it clicked and he realized that she wasn't coming back.
0: And, you know, that, that's something that's come up a lot, especially recently, a lot of questions about Anand's, you know, his tone or his reactions during that phone call and then the coming days after learning of her death. I mean, I, I guess, how would you describe him during that time?
1: Um, well, I guess, first of all, that I sort of had to pull out of Aisha the night that it was the night her body was found or the 10th which I guess was the day after technically once once her body was identified um, when I called her that night I could just tell something was wrong and I just kept asking her like is everything okay and finally I just started with a line of questioning is, have you heard something about Hay and she said yes and I said is she still alive and she said no and then I think my next very next question was has someone told Adnan yet and she said no can you call him um, so of course I get off the phone with her because I don't know how he's going to react. But I can remember specifically calling him, and he was at home. And I'm like, you know, I just need to make sure, like, you're sitting down. And he's like, what's going on? I said, they found his body. She's not alive. And there was literally, like, dead silence on the other end of the phone. Like, he couldn't even speak. And when he finally could talk, he said, is Aisha home? And I said, yes. And, she, you know, he said, I'm going to go over there to her house and of course it was probably 10, at night when this happened and we had school the next day so I actually called Aisha and I said Adon's coming to their house, you need me to come over there and she said yeah, I don't know that I can deal with him if he's upset on my own so I actually, you know, I lived in Rambletown at the time and she lived probably about 15, 20 minutes away from me and I drove over there to be with both of them and he just, he was in. In shock is the best way that I can say it. He, he kept saying that, you know, all Korean girls look alike. There's no way they have the right person. Um, he, it went as far as that he actually picked up the phone and called the police station because he wanted to talk to the detective that had interviewed him a few days prior regarding her disappearance to, to let them know that there's no way that she was dead. Um, so it was just very much a, he was numb if I guess is the best way to describe it. And, again, you know, we went through school the next day. We had counselors that were in in there. And most of us, honestly, went to school, didn't really hang around and talk to the counselors much, but just kind of left to be with each other because that's what we needed at that point. And, you know, we went over to a friend's house, and he was kind of by himself in the basement, sort of emotional, obviously, for a very good reason. Um... And it didn't really click in my mind to him until we were, we were back at Aisha's watching the news that night. And he just, he kind of broke down and he started crying and he said that he just needed to call, um, one of the leaders from the mosque who actually came to get him because he just needed to talk to somebody, I guess to pray or to talk about what he was feeling or what happened. So it, it was a long process even after that for him to, fully grasp things and I think when he got arrested he was just starting to accept the fact that she wasn't here anymore and kind of dealing with his grief but before he was able to do that and you know, he's thrown into this situation where now he's in jail for something that he says that he did not commit so I feel like he never got to get through the whole healing process which I'm sure makes it even worse for him.
0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the way I understand their relationship, um, they were, you know, they had a romantic relationship, but they were, sounds like they were best friends. I mean, they were, they were close before and after. And uh, in the middle of trying to mourn that, then having to deal with, you know, basically fighting for your life through the whole, Court process, it just it, it's just heartbreaking. Um, now, did you? And and I and I understand, you know, you're not a an, an expert or any or anything in this, but just from you knowing your friend, did you take or in your opinion, um, his reactions during that time? Did did you did you see them as being genuine?
1: Absolutely. There, I mean, there was never a question in my mind that he was being genuine about you know, the way he was reacting, the way he was feeling, the way he was talking. And, you know, he's, he's a typical teenage guy where he would kind of convey his feelings to some people, but other people, you know, he was a little bit more guarded because he didn't want to be judged for being a guy and being emotional. Um, But I feel like he and I had a pretty open relationship with, you know, discussing our feelings because you know, we were just close like that. So I don't think that there would have ever been a reason for him to pretend or... To not be honest with me about anything. I mean, I literally talk to him all the time.
0: Yeah, and that—that that was, I guess, one of the one of the biggest reasons that I, you know, that I want to talk to you and hear, you know, hear from you in your in your own voice, because you don't have to be an expert in psychoanalyzing people. If you know someone and they're your friend, you know when something's not right. You know when something's. I, I think about like the guys at the firehouse. You know, we're we're like a family, and I can tell. When one of my guys walked through the doors in 10 seconds, that something's wrong, something's happened, they're upset, they're mad, there's something, and and I feel like you would know more than anyone just by being around him and knowing his personality and who he was, uh, what his reactions meant or, or what you felt about him. And it sounds like, it sounded like a, you know, a 17 year old boy that just, you know, lost one of his closest friends.
1: Exactly. I mean, I I guess for me, around that time, I kind of took, I I guess you would call it like a motherly role among our friends and that, you know, I was always checking up on everybody to make sure that they were doing okay, that they didn't need anything because, you know, it it affected a lot of people in different ways. And it was, it kind of made us grow up like we didn't have a choice. When we were seniors in high school, it was like, all right, this is real adult stuff that we have to deal with now, and we have to figure out how to live life the us, and it's not supposed to happen to kids our age, and it's not supposed to happen when you're in high school, um, but it did, and we had to figure out a way to deal with our emotions as well as dealing with everyone else's at the same time.
0: It's just amazing that you guys had such a, such a tight group and that you were all able to be there for you. Right. And that you were all able to be there for each other. You know, as, as far as all the different friends go that you were, uh, had relationships or you were friends with in that magnet group, um, were you close with Stephanie as well?
1: Um, I was not. She, she was closer with, um, Laura, who, like I said, I'm still pretty good friends with today. Um, but she, you know, Stephanie was very athletic. She was very into sports. Um, you know, she was very popular. And it's not that we weren't friendly with each other. It's, she's just not somebody that I hung out with outside of school on a regular basis. know, so if we had a big party to go to or, you know, whatever, yes, yeah, she was there, but it wasn't somebody. If we had four or five people and we were all going to the movies, Stephanie usually wasn't one of them.
0: Okay, and so then in the kind of aftermath of uh finding out about Hayes Passing, uh she wasn't one of the people that were part of that group when you guys were all kind of meeting and kind of consoling each other?
1: She was there the night that we found out about Hay not being alive anymore at Ayesha's house. Actually, as I schooled up um, Stephanie, did as well at the same time, and that was because I had not called her, and they were they were pretty close in high school as well.
0: And you said you didn't know Stephanie real well, so you know, I guess comparing her reaction to her her normal reaction to things has been a little tougher for you. I mean, was I mean, she was very close to Hay, correct? Um.
1: I mean, I wouldn't say that they were really close, but they were friendly with one another. I you know, I don't know that they hung out outside of, you know, after Hay and I don't work up. I'm, I'm not really sure. I'll be honest with you. And Hay was pretty committed at that point in her life to, you know, she worked a lot because she was trying to have her act together to be able to get money, take go to some college and that sort of thing. So she, she did work a lot. She, when she did have time for friends, you know, like I said, she was usually with Aisha. I think. You know, just a few days before she disappeared, she, Aisha was at my house and she like randomly showed up for dinner, but that was the kind of friendship we had. Like, kind of the doors always open. So if you're in the area, you come by. Our, my mother and father, as well as Aisha's parents were always really welcoming. Um, we kind of had that, that hangout houses, if you will, that, you know, if everybody needed a place to go, it was safe to go there and, um, you know, our parents would make sure we were taken care of.
0: So other than, um, then that night, did you spend much time with Stephanie? Um, you know, in the, in the next, you know, month or so after that, or, you know, in the, not,
1: yeah, not outside of school.
0: Okay. I guess what I'm getting at is, I'm just trying to draw out any little bit about Stephanie because I feel like I just don't know anything about her. Um, you know, like, can you, can you speak at all as far as your impression of her reaction during that time? Was Jay ever around, uh, during any of those times when you saw her? Of course, you said you only saw her at school, so probably not, but,
1: I mean, the one thing that I will say, Stephanie was always, always friendly, always athletic, very popular, very pretty, um, always nice to everybody. And I think what people tend to forget, you know, they look at it from an entertainment value, and this was a really, really shitty time in our lives. Um, you know, one of our friends got murdered, a lot of people didn't know how to deal with it, some people stayed introverted, some people wanted to talk about it, and honestly, for serial to come up and dredging this up, you know, 15, 16 years later, it's been rough on a lot of people. And, you know, I haven't talked to Stephanie, but I would imagine I have friends that I went to high school with that have, you know, had reoccurring nightmares that started again about Hayes death and his disappearance. And it really kind of screwed with people. So I don't think, I think people sometimes take it as a, Oh, Stephanie's got something to hide. I don't think that's it at all. I think that Stephanie, is an adult now. She's moved on with her life. Like, this was a really crappy thing that happened. And she's in a different place now, obviously, as all of us are. So she feels like she doesn't have to talk about it. And I can completely respect that because it was a rough time.
0: Yeah. And, and if I remember from hearing some of the interviews, because it, it, you're right. It is, it is so easy to get lost in all of this and forget about the fact that we're talking to or that we're talking about real people. Um, and I remember, and maybe it was, uh, Lauren on the serial podcast that mentioned that, um, that Stephanie, it's not just that when all this came back out, Stephanie's like in hiding, you know, her friends said, a lot of her pr- friends had said that she just, that was her method of coping, that she just, she didn't want to talk about it. She was just kind of shut down about it. And that's, you know, and, and, and conversations I've had in emails back and forth with people that are kind of asking about that. It's just that everybody grieves in their own way, you know, and we all kind of think that everyone should grieve the same way we do. Um, and, and I've, I've seen it, especially in the line of work that I'm in. Um, you know, some people want to talk and they'll talk your ear out. Some people don't want to talk. So, you know, I personally don't think, um, Stephanie's hiding anything or anything like that. You know, it's, of course, people want to hear from her because she had the connection with Jay and everybody kind of wants to know what was, or very much wants to know what was going on with Jay. But I totally understand the fact that she doesn't want to talk. Like you said, it was, a, it was a terrible time in your life. And and especially with her, you know, her boyfriend being kind of stuck right in the middle of it, right in the middle of her senior year when she's getting ready to graduate and start her adult life. I can only imagine what a horrible experience that was for her.
1: And as it was with everybody. The last thing that any of us wanted to do, you know, obviously this happened in the middle of our senior year of high school, so a lot of us had to come back and take days off from college to testify in the trial uh, because, you know, it was it was kind of like we're trying to move on with our adult lives a little bit and and stay focused on school and this new chapter in our lives, but we kept having to revisit the past, I guess, which it was needed for the trial, and in the end, I don't think that it really was effective because clearly, from what we've seen, just the the amount of stuff that Rabia and Susan and Colin have uncovered about the, I guess, lack of information that was shared with and you attorneys. I kind of feel like it was all, all in vain at this point. Um, even our testimonies, because had had things went a different way, I think it would have had a very different outcome.
0: Yeah, I can I can imagine the frustration. You know, when you look at something where you know, if you could just go back in time and have, you know, have, have Susan Simpson be Anand's lawyer, this would be completely different, <laughs> you know. It, it, you mentioned testifying. So you, you did testify in Anon's. Did you tra- testify in both trials or just one of them?
1: Yes. No, I testified in both trials. The first one started um, mid to late October. That was the one that ended in this trial, I think. Um, or it was originally started, slated to start mid to late October. I think it was a little bit later than that. And then I got called um, the second trial as well. And uh, ironically, the some of the testimony or the line of questioning matched, but some of them did not. Um, I think Aisha couldn't come home from school for the first trial, so they might have asked me questions that they ultimately asked her in the second trial. Um, so, yes, I testified in both trials. So, you know, it was stressful enough to do it once, but then to find out you had to do it again was even, even a little bit more surreal.
0: I'm sure. And, and especially for somebody who's not used to being on a witness stand, just, just that process for anything is, is nerve wracking.
1: And, you know, I, I kept in contact with Adnan. I mean, from a week after he got arrested, you know, he still called me. We worked back and forth all the time, uh, continuously for, for a very long time and kept, kept in contact even after he was convicted. And the first time I, I ever saw him after he got arrested was right before I took a stand at the first trial because I was, they were coming back from lunch. So I was waiting outside to go in and they brought him around these shackles. And that was just a real, like, I guess a real moment for me because I knew that he was in jail, but you know, just to see it like that, it was a little, a little more real.
0: Um, before the trial, did you ever have any contact with Kevin Urich? Did the prosecution side ever talk to you or just Gutierrez?
1: Um, Deuteria has never spoke with me. I never heard from anybody on NSC defense team whatsoever. Um, I did not even talk to Kevin Newark because I can, I could remember going into that whole process feeling kind of lost because nobody directed me on, you know, what I needed to do. Um, I did have somebody that went to, uh, my church that was an attorney, uh, who is now a judge in Baltimore city. Um, And they, they knew Kevin York, so they were able to kind of, I guess, prep me on, like, what to expect. Not necessarily the, um, the line of questioning or what it was about specifically, but at least help me, help prepare me for, like, what was going to happen when I got in the courtroom.
0: Wow. So were you, uh, were you a witness for the defense or for the prosecution?
1: Um, I, <laughs> I feel like that's a trick question. It's not. Um, I'm not so trying to, I, I'm not well, trying that, to trap you. was just, I was surprised that
0: the, nobody talked to you beforehand.
1: That, the reason that I say that is I was called as a witness for the state. Um, but evidently, in, you know, in talking to Susan, I think she covered that at some point on, uh, or in a blog or on the, on the podcast that, um, come to find out I was supposed to be a witness. For the defense, but I was never contacted by the defense, um, and it was a matter of I believe my address was actually wrong on the subpoenas from the defense, so I never even got them.
0: Wow, that that's, that's a, a smack my head moment. I can't like it's unbelievable right. to me because you know for you to be from the little bit of conversation that you had with the police for the state to call you as their witness just seems odd. And then for them to call you and not talk to you and prep, I mean, I've testified in a lot of trials and I've always, you know, had prep from the, you know, not necessarily as far as what to say, but just kind of, you know, what materials you need or what we're going to discuss or things like that. Um, the yeah. fact that neither the prosecution or the defense, and especially the fact that, I mean, you would have been a great defense witness, it I guess it's not shocking anymore the more I hear about the things Gutierrez was doing, but that she never contacted you at all.
1: Right. And, and, you know, Colin brought this to my attention when he sent me uh, a copy of the subpoenas before. He usually runs some blog stuff by me, which I really appreciate. um, If it has to do with me first to see if I have anything to add to it. And, um, you know, just to kind of see that and for them to say that they didn't have a way to get in touch with me, and meanwhile, Adnan was writing me letters sometimes three or four times a week and would call my house. All they had to do was ask him. <laughs> and they, he could have given them my like, contact information without a call.
0: Right. Wow. Uh, sorry. It threw me off a little bit. I wasn't expecting to <laughs> to hear that you were never, never contacted. It's just, it just, and I know I'm repeating myself, but it just blows my mind. I and mean, I was, I just had to testify, um, at a trial on Tuesday as an expert witness. And and just like every other time, you know, I got a phone call from the prosecutor ahead of time um, asking me, you know, what my knowledge was on this particular subject matter. uh, And then in court prior to going into the courtroom, uh, you know, she talked to me about, you know, what was going to be discussed and make sure I had all my materials that I needed before I went on the stand. I've just never, ever. So I can just imagine, especially I'm in court all the time. I can only imagine right. for a 17 year old kid. To just walk into court and have to walk up to witness stand and have no idea what's happening—that's just crazy,
1: right? And I'm—I'm I'm a nervous person as it is, so like you know, I'll—I'll I'll say um or like or you know whatever a lot when I'm talking, and that's what I was focused on was just trying to like answer the questions and not you know, get nervous and start shaking or anything like that. Just because you literally it's very intimidating on stand. There's a judge next to you. And I can remember the judge from the second trial was just very stern. She wasn't nice about anything that she said. If you weren't talking loud enough, she kind of would get crappy with you. And you just don't know how to take that. Like, am I in trouble? Right, yeah. <laughs> What's going on here? I thought I was here to like answer questions, and I'm getting yelled at, and I don't understand why.
0: <laughs> I think I've had that judge before. There, there's, there's a particular judge that's in one of the local courts here that every single time I testify, she yells at every single witness for not being loud enough for the recording to get it. Yeah. And so be these poor people come in to testify and she's screaming at them because they're not loud enough. I could just right. imagine. Right. Like they're
1: not intimidated enough already. And you're making it worse.
0: Yeah. It's just, it's just nerve wracking. Um, what now were you, were the witnesses sequestered? Um, where you had to be out of the courtroom through the rest of the, the trial, you could only be in there during your part. Yes. Okay. So you didn't get to see a lot of, uh, Gutierrez and, um, uh, Uric work.
1: No, we were, I mean, we weren't allowed in there literally at all. And, and we were lucky. I think most of us were lucky that they had nailed down you never know, obviously, how long it's going to keep the question the person before you. And I can just remember, you know, sitting in there and I'm like, oh my God, it's so slack. Like, am I going to get, am I going to get in today or am I going to have to come back and do this again tomorrow? Because, of course, you know, with like a courthouse, there's only so many empty rooms that you sit in, and boards of tiers all day. They're just waiting for your, your turn to get on the stand.
0: Anything else uh, that you want to, that you want to hit on?
1: I mean, not, not necessarily. I've had a, a lot of people ask me, you know, about the serial experience. Um, and I, it's been very surreal, obviously, and like I said, it's it's one of those things where I feel like all these people out there now know how I felt 15 years ago when this all happened, when I was going, something's not right here, Um, so it kind of solidified my feelings, because back then, all of our friends sort of, you know, went in different directions, and nobody ever really talked about it after it happened, so you, you didn't know what someone said or, you know, what what was testified to. So there's been just so many holes for the last 15 years to know what what was said that made a jury so convinced that he was guilty. And now, looking back, you know, I guess I can understand what they heard, but the way that it was presented or the amount of information it was missing, you know, makes me feel a little bit better about why I questioned it for as long as I did and why I could never, you know, grasp the fact that the people would believe that Edmund did it. And I <laughs> I when all this started Sarah actually reached out to me last uh, last February, so February twenty fourteen. And she tracked me down at work and left me a voicemail. I was actually working from home in the snow and I get this voicemail from this reporter wanting to know about my friend Adnan Sayed and I'm like, like this is 50 years ago what is, when is this lady want? <laughs> um so I was a little nervous to meet with because I had no idea what it was about and I think the interviews that I had with her ended up being more me asking her questions <laughs> and her you know clarifying for me what she had come across already um, and I was able to give her a little bit of insight you know, beyond just the, the Muslim community or what the police report said it was more like a, a social level of school and you know what we dealt with within the community um, of Lubbock High School versus you know the Muslim community or you know the Woods the Woodlawn, um, you know, the community where he actually lives. So I think that, that that helped give her some depth. But I've gotten really involved with, you know, there's a Facebook discussion group about Adnan's case, which had burned accidentally, I think it had 5,000 people in it at one point, um, which now I think we're, we've cut it down to two, 2,000 that are, like, really interested in talking about the case, but it pumped me a little bit food things because I'm able to talk about it with other people that might have access to more information regarding the case or the court system. So talking to Susan, talking to Colin, um, you know, and talking to Sarah, obviously, has helped me get a better understanding on all the questions that I've had over the last 15 years.
0: Yeah, I, I can only imagine when you, when you got that call, what is, I, I guess for most people, the first question would have been is, what's a podcast? Did you, were you aware of even what that was then? Cause I hear that a lot.
1: Well, I mean, it, at first, I think it, it didn't even start that Sarah was even doing it as a podcast. Like it wasn't even a thing called serial at that point. It was that she was a journalist for this American life and she was doing a story. Um, and then it, it kind of evolved into this. Podcast, and I, I just remember getting a, a email from her the beginning of October saying, hey, here's the link to the first episode of Serial. This is what's going to be released every week. You know, I promise I'll keep in touch with you guys. And, and Sarah was really good at fact checking. Like, you, if an episode was due to come out today, someday she was still emailing me on Monday just to make sure that the information that she had was correct or if she she had a blank that she needed filled in. Um but it kind of evolved to that's something that I think that Sarah had no idea, you know, how big it was going to get or how many people were going to listen to it. You know, she probably thought maybe a couple of hundred people, not thinking millions of people were going to get involved with the case.
0: I'm sure. And I'm sure you probably thought the same thing.
1: Yeah. And I've, you know, dabbled and read it a little bit. I, um, I was on what they refer to as the dark sub, um, <laughs> for a little while. And, uh, I, I ran into some people that just weren't very, very nice. They weren't very, Understanding of you know I was in in the situation and my answers might not they might not lead to you thinking that he's guilty or or you are not going to be able to convince me that he's guilty because you're you know you're sitting behind a computer screen uh, reevaluating things that you think are facts but I'm looking at is he's a friend of mine who I know very well and to me there's some things that I I would never be able to accept and his guilt would be one of them. Yeah, um, but I've, I've, I've worked, you know, obviously when you put, put something up on Reddit today in one of the, the more private ones I'm, I'm so active in those if people have questions. You know, I don't go in there often, but I'll check and see if I have any messages now and again. But I try and be good about responding to people if they do have questions that I can answer that, that won't put any sort of um, future testimony in jeopardy.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a unique situation you're in with everything kind of in limbo right now. And I've had some of those same experiences with, you know, in, in, then Reddit can be, you know, I found that it can be a great tool because there's a lot of, uh, intelligent people and there were a lot of good things to say, but it's like, my goodness, you have to, you have to filter through 300 comments and, you know, 200 of them are people that are, like you said, they're just not very nice and they're just arguing with each other. Um, so it's, it's, uh, right. it's tough to filter through all of that. So Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Um, I, I remember another question that I wanted to ask you. Since Adnan has has went to prison, have you seen him or spoken with him since he's been in actual prison?
1: Um, yeah, he and I kept in, and actually, ironically, um, regular contact. He and I spoke all the time, probably till about 2005. Um, and that was the point in time where I actually got rid of my landline and had only had a cell phone. And at that point, um, it was collect calls, and you couldn't do collect calls to cell phones. Um, so he and I kind of stopped communicating by my then. And I went to visit him in jail. Uh, it just, I don't even know how many times, probably somewhere between five and 10. Um, and you know, my sister would, Katie would go with me, um, or my best friend Alexis would go with me. And, you know, he decided to was visiting list so that I wouldn't be bored on the drive up there or whatever. Um, and you know, they both knew him. So I have, gone to prison to see him post conviction. Um, and to me, if you know, he still has that, he's not any different than the day before he was arrested. except, that's, you know, if I hug him more than once, then I get yelled at by this, the guard in, in jail. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Um, he, there was a mix up at the jail at some point, um, where they did an audit of the, visiting list for all the prisoners, and a lot of people got removed because they were identified as people that could potentially have relatives that worked in the prison system, uh, which I do not, but I got flagged and got removed from his visiting list. Um, and that that never got worked out. And by the time I think that even probably he have gotten worked out, he got transferred uh, to where he is now.
0: And so you haven't seen him since he's been at the prison he's at now?
1: Correct. I probably, his, probably '05 or 06 was probably the last time I saw him. Um, he and I corresponded still through letters, you know, not as frequently as we did uh, immediately, but we did write back and forth a lot, probably until 2010, 2011. Um, I had some stuff going on in my life where I just got super busy. Um, and then once I interviewed with Sarah, he and I started corresponding again. So I still rewrite him. Um, I send him pictures of my my son. Um, stuff like that, just trying to try and keep in contact with him and, and help him to realize there are people on the outside that still very much care about him. You know, and, and honestly, you know, my biggest hope besides just him, you know, getting out ideally in the perfect world by, where I'd love for him to get out, you know, regardless, because I, I truly believe that he's innocent. Um, for me, if they could find out who really killed Hay. um, that would almost be the silver lining because it would be able to put this entire thing to rest. And not that I yeah, not that I don't want to see him get out on a technicality, but I feel like the ultimate win would be is if if somewhere in all this either someone could come forward and admit their guilt or the DNA test brought forward, you know, who else was in her car that maybe had no business being there that uh could release some more information about who who could have possibly done this to her. Uh, and, and that's what my ultimate hope is. I know it's a long shot, but I, you know, I keep my fingers crossed every day that that's
0: going to happen. Yeah. Me too. And, and, and I'm sure I'm, and maybe I'm overly optimistic about it, but you know, the, the reason I keep driving forward with this podcast, you know, it's, and it's, and it's evolved a long ways since, you know, we started it, you know, over, over two and a half months ago. Um, from just kind of a place to get our ideas out to really being on a mission to find the killer. And I just, for some reason, I just feel in my gut that we're going to get there, that we're going, to, you know, there's someone out there that knows what happened and there's just got to be a way to reach them. And then, of course, there's the DNA evidence and, and all of that out there. I just, but, um, I'm with you. I, I, I hope and pray and, and, and I truly believe that, that we're going to find out who did this.
1: And I think what resonated with me most out of the whole serial, the whole 12 episodes was in the last podcast when when was talking to Ed on about his case and you, you just hear the, the emotion in his voice, which to me it sounded like he was on the verge of tears when talking about the DNA evidence that he has nothing to be afraid of, that he wants them to test everything he possibly you know they possibly could. And had he known about this 15 years ago, I think things could have been completely different than they are
0: right now it would be a different world i think right now for a lot of people if things have been done differently in 15 years ago
1: Absolutely.
0: well krista i really really appreciate you calling in and it has been really cool to talk to you and um anytime you need anything or you you have something you want to talk about please feel free to get in touch with me again i'm sure my i know myself and i'm sure all of my listeners would love to hear from you another time uh somewhere as we continue on with this and moved on down the road
1: Absolutely. And you know, my Facebook is private, but my Twitter uh, is definitely not. So if anybody sends me a message or has a question, if it's something that I'm comfortable asking or answering, I definitely will. Um, you know, people have asked me questions that I'm not comfortable answering and I I will be 100% upfront and honest that I'm not okay with that or I have no idea because I don't, I don't like speculating about other people. I don't like speculating about what could have happened, but you know, I have had some people email me with some some off the wall theories that you know I can just say no, I that definitely didn't happen. <laughs> yeah.
0: You should see my email box.
1: <laughs> right. I'm sure yours is quite interesting.
0: Yeah. Um uh, do you wanna give out your Twitter handle?
1: Um it so, so I've not been same Twitter handle since I bought my first brand new car, which was a Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> um so my Twitter handle is Jeep the letter R, the number four, and C H C K S. So Jeeps R for chicks.
0: Nice. I like it. <laughs> um All right. Well, if anybody wants to get a hold of Krista or ask her any questions, you can always tweet her uh, at that handle, which is at Jeep's R4 Chicks. Did I get that right?
1: Yeah. It just doesn't have the I in Chicks, but yeah.
0: Okay. Sounds good. And thank you very much, Krista, for calling in again. And I really appreciate it. And uh hopefully we'll be in contact again uh, going down the road.
1: All right. Well, thanks for contacting me.
0: All right. Take care, Krista. Thank you.
1: All right. Have a good night.
0: You too. Bye. Bye. All right. I hope all of you enjoyed that interview with Krista. Given that there was not a lot of new information brought out in the last couple of weeks since uh, myself as well as the Undisclosed team took a bit of a hiatus for the holiday, I thought it'd be nice to hear from another one of Anon's friends. And also, I think Krista is just a great source to help us kind of get an idea of what Adnan was like, what his reactions were, what his responses were, really get a good understanding of how Adnan, uh, was acting, reacting, responding to the different revelations in the case as Hay went missing and her body was found as well as after his arrest. You know, we, we're looking at pieces of evidence and we're looking at documents from 15 years ago, uh, but it's sometimes we have to wrap our brain around the practicality of you know, the people that knew him, the people that were close to him, how he was acting during the months following the disappearance and death of Heyman Lee. Now, before I close the show today, I'd like to read a couple of listener emails. The two emails that I have today both relate to the same basic question. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read both emails and then I'll respond. Hi, Bob. You're doing great work with the podcast. I know you've addressed this issue at various points, but I wanted to get your full opinion on the matter. What has led you to believe that Jay was involved in Hay's death? During serial, I don't think I was alone in considering the virtual lock that Jay had something to do with it, given that he had led the police to the car, seemed to know details about the body, was possibly in possession of Adnan's cell phone that pinged the Lincoln Park Tower around the alleged 7pm burial time, and of course implicated himself in his own story. But with what we've learned since serial, aren't all these things we thought we knew almost certainly false? Whether Jay actually led police to the car seems a questionable at best proposition, and if he did, he admitted at trial that he saw the car before he talked to the police as part of his normal routine. The most striking detail Jay relayed about Hay's body, that it was, quote, pretzeled up in the trunk, is almost certainly false due to the lividity report. The infamous Leakin Park pings from the cell tower evidence, never a conclusive or exact science to begin with, are now basically irrelevant, thanks to that same lividity report and Jay's news story in the Intercept interview. And the fact that Jay implicated himself now seems less far-fetched, given that the police had picked him up on a charge shortly before the whole thing, which seemingly, due to his cooperation with the police, was delayed and eventually dropped, and that the police were threatening to charge him with Hay's murder if he didn't cooperate. Jay himself confirms this arrangement at trial. The trial clip is played during Undisclosed Episode 3. So what is it that has you thinking Jay was involved and that the detectives didn't invent the story out of whole cloth and threatened to press the case against Jay if he didn't verify it? This seems to be exactly what they were accused of doing in at least one other case that was discussed on Undisclosed. Given the ghastly cultural report that was provided early in the investigation, how likely is it that they chose Adnan as the suspect because they viewed him as an easy target to prosecute and Jay as the witness because he was an easy target to intimidate? Thanks for your time, Kyle T. And Kyle gives his Twitter handle, at KyleLovesTV. Thank you, Kyle, for that email, and it's an excellent question. And I'll get to the answer to it in just a moment. Um, but I want to first read my next email uh, because part of how I'm feeling on the topic is addressed in this next email as well. So my next email is from Brianne. Brienne says, Hello, Bob. First, I just want to say I love your show. It is amazing to see how many people out there care about justice for Hayley and for Adnan. At this point, I have gone from theory to theory, and just when I think I have a viable theory, I remember some detail that makes me realize the theory is about as plausible as Jay's story. But I do have some things I wanted to throw out there and see if you or anyone else has been thinking about these same issues. I was convinced for a while that Jay completely fabricated his involvement with this case. That he knew someone that was actually involved in the crime for example, Davis, Moore, or a mystery person, and got enough details to insert him into the story and make himself seem important and cool to his friends. On Serial, there were many interviews in which people close to him admit that he is a liar, a teller of tall tales, and that no one believed anything he said. So just when I think Jay really has nothing to do with this, except that he has only heard something about it and brought a nod into it to get out of his legal troubles, I remember one thing. Jen. How do you explain Jen? She would have no reason to go along with Jay's complete fabrication or implicate herself in covering up for the crime. This leads me to think Jen and or Jay must have been involved in the actual crime. They are also completely adamant about giving each other an alibi on the 13th from approximately 3.30 to 4 p.m. time frame, even though this is completely contrary to the state's case presented at trial. Why is that? I think this time window must be the critical time of the crime, and they have to put themselves together at that time to avoid anyone uncovering where both of them actually were. We know there is an inconsistency. There are stories already when Jay claims to be at Jen's house at 3.21 p.m., yet is calling Jen's house from a non-cell phone. That leads me to believe that Jay was really not at Jen's house at that time. So where was he? Where was Jen? Is she just covering for him? So as you can see, I go from Jay is completely innocent to Jay's involved firsthand in a matter of minutes. I'm sure you can relate to this type of thinking. Thanks for taking the time to read, Brianne. Well, thank you, Brianne, for sending that email in, and I certainly can relate to that type of back and forth thinking. Um, the truth is, I, I don't know. I have my speculations and theories, um, but I really don't know. But to answer both of your questions, yes, I personally do believe that Jay and Jen were involved in this crime. Now, understand that just because I'm the one behind the microphone doesn't make that necessarily correct. That's just my take on it. And I have several reasons for thinking that way. First and foremost, I have the same reservations about Jen that Brianne does. If this was just Jay, I think I could buy into the idea that Jay actually had nothing to do with this crime. But Jen is just this nagging detail that I can't get out of my head and I can't figure out how to do anything with it other than to believe that she does know something, she was involved, or that Jay was involved, and she's trying to protect Jay. Or that Jay's telling the truth and she's just confirming Jay's story. But the fact that Jen gets brought in first... Now again, we all have to remember that we don't even know that for sure. We seem to have pretty solid evidence that the police were speaking with Jay prior to the night he was brought in for questioning before they arrested Anon. But before him, they bring Jen in. She claims she doesn't know anything. And remember at that time, depending on what you want to believe, they're looking for Anon at that point. They may or may not know that Jay has any involvement at all. My personal theory, and it's just that a theory, is that they didn't know that Jay was involved yet at that point. If they had done the tower dump, as mentioned in Undisclosed, they had pulled the cell phone records, all they would see is Adnan's phone making all these calls to Jen. So they bring Jen in, and Jen says she doesn't know anything, and she leaves. Now, granted, when she left, the police told her no one's a suspect and everyone's a suspect. So there was certainly some fear put into her when she left that interview. So what I feel happened, and it's just that, a feeling, the feeling in my gut, it scared the hell out of her. And the only reason that it would scare the hell out of her is if she knew something. Either she knew something, or she was directly involved or indirectly involved in the crime. If she literally had no idea what happened, because none of this is true and it's completely made up, I don't see why in the world she would come back to the police station. She was asked about a crime that she knew nothing about. She knew she knew nothing about it. She knew she wasn't involved in it. Why come back? So then she comes back and she brings a lawyer. Now, I've had a lot of emails and tweets and comments about the fact that they think that Jen bringing a lawyer implicates her in some guilt in some way. And I don't believe that. I think that anyone in her situation, if they had the ability to do so, would certainly bring a lawyer with them. But what just keeps sticking with me is I could see someone who had nothing to do with this crime and knew nothing about this crime coming back the next day with their mother and a lawyer back into the police station, but for a different reason than why Jen came back. I could certainly see a teenager and her mother, an attorney, marching into a police station and letting them know in a not-so-nice way that they will not be harassing and intimidating this young girl. But that's not what Jen did she went back to the police station to tell a story. She went back with her attorney and her mother and spilled the beans about Jay having a non-cell phone, about the fact that a non-committed the crime, and Jay helped. And remember, she didn't say she saw any of this. All she said is that that's what Jay told her. So I still wrestle with the idea that it's possible that Jen believes Adnan did it, and she believes that Jay helped out with it, but really had no involvement in the crime at all, and is simply basing those thoughts and that testimony on what Jay told her. And as we know and we've heard time and time again, Jay lies. So I don't think that's something that we can just throw out. It's a viable theory in my mind that she went in there thinking she was telling the truth because that's what Jay told her. But as we consider her statement further, remember that she implicated herself in helping to destroy and hide the evidence and conceal this crime, which is a huge crime in and of itself. So if we're led to believe that Jen's sole intention was to go into the police station and snitch on Adnan and or Jay, why implicate yourself if you had no involvement? There's no purpose there. Or at least I can't see a purpose there, and maybe someone more intelligent than me can see it, but I just don't see it. If we're to believe that Jen literally had nothing to do with this crime, knew nothing about it, the police had nothing hanging over her head, and she went in to fabricate some story, or to retell a story that was created out of cloth from the police, why implicate herself? I just can't bring myself to believe that she would do that. It would have been easy enough to say, okay, it was Jay calling me that day, Jay had a non cell phone, and later on Jay told me that Adnan killed Hay, go talk to Jay, and walk out of there. But in a way she threw, well not in a way exactly, she threw all three of them under the bus. And then considering the fact that Jen had an attorney with her, gives me even more pause. Not that I think she's guilty because she had an attorney, but she went into the police station with her mother and an attorney. Unlike Jay. She had protection. She had someone there letting her know what her rights were. She had someone there making sure that she wasn't bullied or coerced. If she had nothing to do with this, I don't believe there's an attorney out there that would advise her to completely lie and fabricate this story implicating herself in a felony. So that's my basic reasoning for why I believe Jen is involved in at least some way. Now that could mean a couple of things. It could mean that she was involved with Jay in the murder, and Adnan had nothing to do with it, and they decided to pin it on Adnan to save their own skin. Or it could mean that the murder really happened the way that Jay said it did, right? I mean, she could be telling the truth, or at least a version of the truth she heard from Jay. Now, you can choose to believe whichever one of those options that you want, but either way leads me to the conclusion that Jen was most certainly involved in the crime. And again, that's just my opinion, and I'm the one with the microphone. But that doesn't make my opinion hold any more weight than any of yours. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and responses to that over the next week. So then moving on to Jay's involvement, I believe it's possible for witnesses to be coerced. And there certainly seems to be some of that in Jay's case. When he's in there alone with no attorney and the police are telling him, if you don't tell us what we want to hear, we're going to charge you with the murder. But again, I go back to the fact that Jen implicated him. His best friend, Jen, implicated him in this crime. So I don't believe the versions of the story that Jay told. And if I did, I couldn't choose which one of the versions to believe. And we know that most, if not all of them, are not even possible given the actual physical evidence. But Jay was involved, in my opinion. Yes, the police had something to hold over him. But it was a misdemeanor offense. Now, was that enough for you to implicate your friend in a murder that you were involved in? Could be. Is that enough to completely fabricate and make up a story about a murder where you assisted in the murder and helped to cover it up? I just don't think it's enough motivation for all that. I believe that if Jay literally knew nothing about this and as the story was created out of cloth, I think he just walks out of there. Now that being said, everyone's different. Everyone has different motivations. Everyone has a different moral compass. But like all things, what we have to do is look at a preponderance of the evidence, or at least that's my method. And when I consider those facts, along with the facts that I mentioned about Jen earlier, and you put those all together, I'm not saying it's not possible that the two of them had nothing to do with it. I'm just saying I don't personally think that that's the most likely scenario. Now, I get lots and lots of emails from listeners asking about the corruption of the Baltimore Police Department. And if I think this was this massive conspiracy where they framed the Muslim and put him in prison and wondering what I think about that. I've swung pretty wildly back and forth between tinfoil hat conspiracy theory to maybe this is all in our heads uh to kind of where I've landed now. And my theory on what was going on with the police is based on a couple of things. I've done some research I've been in contact through email with a Baltimore City police officer who wants to remain anonymous and does not want to come on the show. But he's been able to shed a little bit of light, as far as generalities are concerned, about how detective work works in the Baltimore Police Department. And he had given me a lot of the same information that I got from Michael Wood in my email interview with him. That everything is about closing the case. It's not a massive grand conspiracy. They don't have it out for any of these people. It's just a matter of closing the case and moving on to the next one, which that was really hard for me to wrap my brain around, given the fact that I'm from a very small town, and that's not an issue here. We're not dealing with hundreds of murders a year here. Every big case is just that here. It's a big case. Most of the local officers I speak to here are looking through those lenses, saying I would never do that. Of course I wouldn't. Everything's by the book. But when you deal with two, three, or four murders in a year, of course that's the case. When you're dealing with 300, it's quite a different situation. And shamefully, I must admit that I've gotten a lot of information and insight into the Baltimore Police Department, in part by the TV show The Wire. Several listeners recommended that I watch that show, and I was reluctant to do so just because it may show how a police department in Baltimore works, but it's fiction, it's TV however after discussing it with this baltimore city cop from what he's saying it's pretty accurate that's pretty close to the way things work um, and then after the email interview with michael wood and i kind of compared what he had responded to my questions to the show the wire and i see the same similarities they're closing cases they're cutting corners they're doing whatever they have to do to close cases so based on that information couple of conversations with Baltimore City cops, and watching a TV detective show, which I'm sure all you are realizing right now makes me the expert, um, giving that information. What I think happened was just I don't think there was a grand conspiracy. I think that this was one more murder added to a huge caseload for Ritz and McGillivary. There's pressure from all these murders to get them closed, to get those clearance rates up, to get the cases shut down and move to the next one. I think that this case had a little more pressure than most cases, given the fact that Jada Lambert was murdered just nine months prior, another 18-year-old Woodlawn student strangled, dumped in a park. I think that the brass and the DA were breathing down the throats of these detectives to get this thing closed. I don't think that they looked through the yearbook and picked out a Muslim and went after them because they wanted to charge a Muslim. I don't think that's what happened at all. I think that they were looking for leads, and they had none. Now, typical suspects in this type of case, of course, are going to be the boyfriend, ex-boyfriend. They quickly looked into both, and they didn't find anything, which coincidentally is part of the reasons I believe so strongly in Adnan's innocence at this point is through their initial investigation. They weren't finding anything that was giving them any reason to bring Adnan in. They weren't finding evidence. The initial interviews that they did did not implicate Adnan. But somewhere along the lines, someone said, you should check out Adnan. Now, whether that's the anonymous phone call or whether that's Heyman Lee's family, from what I understand, the cultural consultant uh, was actually contacted by Hayes family, so it's possible Hayes family thought Adnan maybe had something to do with it. I don't know. But I think what happened was they were grasping at straws to try to find a suspect to charge somebody with this murder. I personally believe that Ritz and McGillivary believed that Adnan was guilty, or they wanted to believe that he was guilty. I don't believe that it was a, quote, frame job on Adnan. And I know we're splitting hairs here, and it is a subtle difference between the two. But I think at some point they were at least suspicious. They believed he's suspect number one. They think he's a good suspect. And so they started honing in on him. They were looking for evidence. They were cutting corners. They were trying to find anything that they could use to give him a charge. But you'll notice he wasn't brought in. It's almost three weeks after Hay's body was found before they finally brought him in. He wasn't put into an interrogation room, nothing like that. I believe they really had nothing until they decided to contact Jen based on the cell phone records they had pulled. And they absolutely pulled those cell phone records because they already had their mind made up and non-did it even though they didn't have any evidence. And all of a sudden, Jen gives them Adnan on a silver platter. And I think in the detective's mind, Jay is peripheral to this. See, they've already been working on building a case for Adnan. They're one step closer to closing this one, to filing a charge. So Jen says, it wasn't Adnan calling me, it was Jay. But Jay's saying that Adnan's the one that actually killed her. Bingo. They'd already been working on building a case against Adnan. Jay comes in. He starts to try to lie his way out of it, as he always does, and when he realizes that it's very possible that he's going to get charged with this, he points the finger at Adnan. Now, you can believe that he snitched on Adnan, or that Adnan was a patsy, but in this discussion, we're wondering what was going on with the police, and I really believe that that's how it went down. When Jay flipped on Adnan, of course the police were going to run with it, and they're going to keep building their case. And they're going to keep Jay in that room, and they're going to offer him whatever they have to offer him to help them manipulate this timeline to close this case. Now, do I think somewhere along the lines, Ritz and McGillivray realize that it's very possible Anand didn't do this? Yes. And that's where the corruption comes in, in my mind. And that's the part that makes me sick. There are millions of us out there home-sleuthing this case. We're not detectives. We're not police officers. We're not prosecutors. But we can see that this story doesn't add up. I don't believe that Ritz and McGillivary didn't see that. I think they didn't care if they had their guy. They had a guy. And they had their star witness that was giving them their case on a silver platter. And this is where I think the Muslim angle played very heavily into this. And it certainly did earlier as well as we've heard in the Undisclosed podcast that the police were only subpoenaing cell phone records for other Pakistanis or Muslims. But I think they had a witness that was willing to play ball. They had this cultural memo that provided them with a motive. Adnan's attorney was not even attempting to find an alibi for him. They could close it and move on. So that's my opinion on what was going on with the police department and with Ritza very specifically. And it makes me sick. It's a way of thinking that I just can't understand. I know so many police officers, and the ones that I know they are just good people they're good cops I understand that they're in a different culture in Baltimore than they are here in small-town Michigan but damn it these are people's lives thank you all so much for tuning in today and thank you again for all the support you continue to provide through sending in all of your emails tweets Facebook messages You listeners are the driving force behind this show. I want to thank you for all of your help in assisting with the funding of this program. And again, if you'd like to help out with the funding, you can always go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty and download a free audiobook, or you can donate directly to the program through our website, SerialDynasty.com, and click the donate button. Thanks to all of you, our audience is continuing to grow. Please help keep that momentum rolling by continuing to tell your friends about the show, talk about the serial dynasty on social media twitter and facebook and instagram if you haven't done so already please take a moment to go onto itunes and review the show and keep sending in those theories and thoughts to theories at serial dynasty.com. and as always you can always get a hold of me on twitter at serial dynasty special thanks to johnny rose of slightly subversive music who created the music for the show and also to listener tate who created our new logo Don't forget tomorrow night to download the new undisclosed episode number seven. I want to thank you one more time for listening and contributing. And until next week, this has been the Serial Dynasty.